Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. Um, today we're on the third section of our conversation on hell. It's me and my friend Garrett Saul. If you have not listened to the first two episodes on hell, I strongly recommend you do because you probably won't understand this one without some of the terminology that we use in the previous two. So um, go ahead and check those out first if you haven't already. Uh, this is an introduction to universalism. Uh, just so so you know, universalism is the idea that um, people will be punished for their sins, for uh, whatever they did, that there will be judgment, there will be punishment, but in the end, everybody gets saved. Everybody makes it to, quote-unquote, heaven in the end. Um, so uh, please enjoy this conversation, and also uh, please let me know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Ethan Renault. Um, just let me know what you're thinking about these. I'd love to interact with you. Um, I know that this can be a sensitive topic for a lot of people, but I also think it's an important conversation to have and maybe to kind of re-examine some of the assumptions we've made about hell specifically, um, historically, and as we've interpreted that into our theology. So um, you can email me, Ethan at EthanRenault.com, or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, reach out to me there. So anyway, here it is, uh, Hell Part 3, Universalism. How are you doing? Pretty good, sorry. We're some a little bit late. We, uh, we just got done watching an episode of This Is Us, and <laughs> Spark, very... Uh, good and needed deep the conversation. So here we are. Really? Just with you and your wife? Yeah. Wow. That's good. That's a powerful so, show. If it can do yeah. that. Do you watch it or no? I saw the first like four or five episodes or something like that. But then I was like, this show's just like trying to make people cry by like punching all the right buttons. So I was like, eh, it's okay. I feel like to be feeling like you manipulated. Yeah, I, I I did as a skeptic. I did feel that way with season one, but uh, Andrew got really into it, and now I am too. As the characters and the situations become more complex and nuanced. So, oh, really? Just nice. Like so, <laughs> but that's crazy though. You saw someone get shot like just up the block from you. I did. Yeah. So yeah, I. Basically, my roommates and I were just out in our front lawn, and um, and we were just, like, grilling chicken, tossing the frisbee, hanging out, playing guitar, just, like, the chillest Saturday. And then suddenly we hear, like, pop, pop, pop. And we were like, what? And we looked up our street, and, like, maybe a block and a half up, so maybe two-tenths of a mile, 0.2 miles away. I don't know how to describe it it's like far yeah. enough away that we could see like the 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 silhouettes of the people running into the street but we couldn't identify them or anything like that and we're watching right. and um and i hear my roommate yell like he has a gun and like, he's shooting again and i looked up and i saw like he was shooting and the muzzle flash came out of the gun every time and it took like a second or two for the sound to hit us after we saw it so we saw like the muzzle flashes and then it was like bang, 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 bang after that. Bang. And right away I called 911 and my roommates kept watching and they were like, they're getting into a car. It's a white sedan. I'm like trying to tell this to the 911 dispatcher. And so, yeah, it was pretty intense. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy night. And then after the police showed, down, showed up, there were like 15 emergency vehicles that showed up and they shut down the street and my roommate and I walked down and we were like, we saw what happened from a distance and we just wrote out our statements and it was, uh, yeah, pretty intense, but you know, it's one thing, I think I wrote this in that article, like it's one thing to, uh, see that on TV and you're like, oh yeah, it's just like, you know, it looks real, but then they're going to get up after the cameras stop rolling but then you see it like unplanned in real life and you're like, dang, like somebody's dead now. Yeah. 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 So and high schoolers. 
Yeah. They said that they were only like 14 or 15 years old. And so, um, yeah, so that was really tough. It was really sad. And, you know, I wrote that as a way of like kind of thinking it through and processing it. And to be honest, it kind of shaped a little bit of what I've been thinking about as far as heaven and hell too, because it's like, I don't know those kids, but if I did, like I imagine that they, they've never been presented like a clear picture of Jesus and, and now they're dead. And what do we do with that? You know? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah. Just like the universalist said, some tricky text. (laughs) I saw that. I kind of laughed because I was like, like tricky as in like you're kind of like exegete them to fit your perception of what you think hell should be or tricky because they pose a serious threat and you just don't know what to do with, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll say I just, I actually just finished it a couple minutes ago and I think, um, I think that he made a lot of really good points and here's the the two strongest points he made and then one thought I had while reading it. So the one that he made, um, uh, I think the strongest one was like over and over again, you see God like pronouncing judgment on a people um, like Edom, Gilead, Sodom, whatever it is, um, punishes them severely, but then restores them. And that's like the repeated theme throughout the Bible. And he pointed it out and I was like, huh. And then when he applied, when he moved to some of Jesus's texts and he said, um, you know, Jesus here quotes Isaiah 66, which is a pronouncement of judgment, but then like it follows up with hope for that nation again. So it's like, you know, like, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea. I forget what it's called, but it's like when a, um, Jesus did it several times to the Pharisees when he would like quote an old Testament text and the Pharisees would get offended. And you're like, why is it so offended? Offensive. And it's because the, the following verse in the old Testament would have been really, really like, uh, insulting or something like that. And they would know that. And in the same way, he could kind of be doing the reverse of that by pronouncing the judgment text on people and saying, there will be like the everlasting fire and worm, implying then that there will also be like restoration after that, you know, like using that punishment as a way of purification, um, judgment and punishment for the sake of purification, just like salt and fire do. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, I forget the other point that I was going to bring up, but then the thought I had while I was reading it is I really wish that I could kind of unprogram my brain from like, um, the fear of universalism, like kind of hearing that word and immediately like the knee jerk response is like, Oh, heretics, you know? (laughs) Um, like I kind of wish that I could unprogram that and then just kind of open up the Bible open up these four interpretations and then be like, now, which one do I most agree with? And which one makes the most sense biblically? You know, like, um, real, I've been realizing how much of my gut response is programmed into me rather than actually looking at what the Bible says and, um, and just kind of interpreting it as it stands. So yeah. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's, uh, Oh, all really good thoughts. I found that the Universalist chapter, he, out of everyone so far, has done the best job of narratively describing the scriptures. Yeah. Um, you know, the very first guy, you know, traditional, you know, uh, ECT view, uh, eternal conscious torment, uh, is very just like 10 texts straight up. <laughs> you know, it, it, it yeah. seems like it doesn't seem very like nuanced. I mean, and, and granted, you can only be so so nuanced when you have a short amount of space, and you know mm-hmm. it's just. But it seems like ten proof texts. Here's the brief context of what's going on, but it doesn't. It didn't capture, to me at least, like the narrative arc of scripture. Yeah. I thought the annihilationist guy did a little bit better job of that, um, and just kind of describing, you know, scripture. But I think the universalist guy did 
did the best job of that. And I find myself like agreeing with a lot of his, you know, points. Like, you know, he has some questions right before this section where it says church reports of the age to come, you know? Yeah. Uh, so my question here is this, is the resurrection of Jesus on behalf of all humanity a foretaste of the future of all humanity, or only the future of part of humanity? Mm-hmm. If the latter does Christ's resurrection on behalf of the damned come to nothing, are they beyond its reach? And to all of that, you know, I would say no, it's definitely for all of humanity, uh, does Christ's, res- Christ's resurrection on behalf of the damned come to nothing? Well, of course not. But it's interesting, in the I think it was in the, the purgatory guy's response to this chapter. He mentions, you know, Karl Barth and how his um, his election in Jesus Christ is a very, like, how do you put it, like a hard form of predestination. Uh, and And I've really been into getting into, like, New Testament studies lately, like devouring books by N.T. Wright, trying to get into the mindset as best as I could of like, mm-hmm. you know, Second Temple Judaism, a first century Jew, and how understanding the Old Testament and how they would understand it, the Messiah, and then kind of making my theological reflections from that lately, rather than just like, you know, I'm... I can't fully drop all my 21st century white Western baggage, but I do mm. want to see like, Hey, how would like, you know, Philo or the wisdom of Solomon understand like the old Testament and right. know what's going on. <laughs> um, and that being said, it's like the Jewish people saw Jesus as like the, you know, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would bring God's kingdom on earth, you know, and they were, you know, everyone says that they're expecting a political Messiah. It's like, well, yeah, but they're expecting God's everything to be made right now. Like the end of the age was supposed to be instantaneous, not this Mm -hmm. overlap. And now that, you know, it's like, yeah, the church is a foretaste of the age to come and we're supposed to be living into, um, God's kingdom and God's, you know, the vindication of God's kingdom coming is shown when Christian communities actually live as such. Hmm. And people are kind and tenderhearted toward one another when people yeah. are reconciled, when there's, you know, ethnic harmony and not animosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the problem with the universalism text for me is that it, uh, I think it over. Or I think it, I'm trying to say, I think it overrealizes like the uh, the the potency of the age that has come in Jesus right now. Um, well, I, mean, I don't it's, think. It's, it's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say I don't think that he does away with any kind of justice, or that he says that the universalism is like as soon as someone dies, they're in heaven. And that's like, period, the end, you know? Like, I don't think that that's what he's saying. And I was hoping he would sort out the mechanics of what exactly he expects to happen a little bit more. Um, Because he didn't really do that. He just kind of talked vaguely about restoration and salvation and things like that. Um, But he didn't necessarily do away with punishment. He said that he sees hell as a way of purification I guess, on the way to ultimate salvation. Um, I don't think that he believes, like, everybody, as soon as they die, just is in paradise. I don't think that that's his view um, for people who die as non-believers anyway. And it might not be the, you know, first century Jewish view either. It might not even be Paul's view. I'm still trying to, you know, sort that, you know, all out because we have this idea of, like, when, you know, we die, our souls will instantly be with God and, you know... Old Testament is like, yeah, we'll be in Sheol and we'll just be like in the realm of the dead. I think we talked about this previously too. Yeah. And I think Sheol, the more I've talked about it with you and with a couple other people, other guys from the arena of dialogue, it's like, I'm pretty sure that that's refers to like the thought would have been a realm of non-existence. It seems like, or at least reference to like physical death of the body at the very least. But yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Uh, and then how, you know, that has been reconfigured. And I think too of you know, like when Jesus rose from the dead. I think it's in Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection 
that there were saints who were in tombs that got up and started walking around like mm-hmm. other people had been risen from so it's like okay so it seems like that there was a holding place for these people or somehow or maybe there wasn't and then they were just reanimated kind of like and i'm just thinking about this now but maybe it's like ezekiel's vision of dry bones coming to like a actual yeah. existence because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really think about it, you have to say the same thing about Lazarus too, right? Because he was bodily dead and came back, even though it was a short period of time. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think the, lang- the, the language of the New Testament often is sleep. You know, Jesus says that, Paul says that, they have fallen asleep. Um, so I don't know. But, you know, the the fallback, I think, is always the thief on the cross. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? Which is interesting because um, in certain Greek constructions, uh, the word today, I think, has been added. Let me double check real quick. So it, it might oh, not really? actually be in certain translations. What's that? Is that Luke 23? Uh, I don't know. I can look it up. Yeah, look up a direct verse for me. Do, 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 do. my Greek text on my phone because I don't want to be pretentious carrying a big Greek testament around. <laughs> yeah, I have a Greek and Hebrew app on my phone too. Oh, you're right. Luke 23, 43. 43. Okay, yeah, it says... Oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's there. And he said to them, truly I say to you, today with me... You will be in paradise. Yeah. Say me, Ron. I mean, that's where um, N.T. Wright gets a lot of his basis for his, um, I don't know, mechanics of the afterlife. Or what he calls life after life after death. He bases it a lot on that verse. You know, because he's talking about like, there's like the spiritual presence with Christ, but the future resurrection in a body. Right, and um, he did mention, so I'm listening to his book right now called Paul Biography, and he did mention how uh, that the New Testament writers really didn't talk about what really happens after you die. They just wanted to question it on their mind. Like, they would have been like, yeah, you're with the Messiah. What does that look like? But they were more focused on mm. God's kingdom now and mm. living now in that reality. Um and awaiting the future, you know, resurrection of their body, but mm-hmm. they weren't concerned with the mechanics of life after death. They know that they were going to live, that they're going to live forever, and that yeah. they die. It's just, you know, the sting of death. But they yeah. weren't like, your soul will immediately be in the, you know, I mean, I don't think they would even think in terms of like the soul leaving the body to have this like conscious but bodiless existence, you know. Um, yeah, you're right, because there was a lot of talk of resurrection, and like hostilely too, there's, um, I think it's John 12, there's a tiny random little verse that someone pointed out to me recently, that um, it says, and the religious leaders also tried to kill Lazarus, because he had been raised from the dead too, so it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like, if Jesus, like the Sadducees who were like so anti-resurrection that they wanted to just go kill Lazarus because he had been raised from the dead, like that's how much of a hot topic it was in that day. So I think that that reveals a lot um, about the thought of the time. And if someone was risen from the dead, you know, I mean, it would be like, I mean, it would just be hey, the, the, the end is near, basically. Hmm. <laughs> because when Jesus came in, you know, it's like when or when he's talking with, um, you know, John's disciples that come and, you know, it's like, you know, hey, we're having some doubts. John's in prison. Like, who really are you? It's like, hey, go tell John that the blind see, the lame walk. You know, mm-hmm. like, this is, this is what's happening here. And everyone knows that's code for, you know, the restoration of all things and the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. But you know which one he leaves out from that list, right? The dead being raised, right? No, he leaves out the prisoners are released from prison. Oh. Because John died in prison. Yeah. But um, 
the crazy, yeah. Um, I, I haven't like articulated this, but there's a thought I've been having the past few days. And it's something like this, that the Bible is utterly explicitly clear on a couple things. And that's like feeding the hungry, giving to the poor, um, like looking after the widows and the orphans and clothing the naked, like, um, releasing the prisoner or maybe not really visiting the prisoners, like not forget, not forgetting about the outcasts of society. You could sum it up kind of, um, like the Bible beginning to end, I think is so explicit about those things. And yet Christians tend to be more interested in arguing about the things that the Bible is most vague about, like um, rather than doing what they're both the Bible's most clear about. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, like life after death, um, salvation. It's like if the Bible, like if if you seem more worried about life after death than the Bible itself does, then maybe you should reread the Bible and see what the actual imperatives are, because. I feel like if you get too hung up on these questions, then you neglect the very things it's actually very clearly telling you to do. Um, you tithe your dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that obvi- that's for some obvious reasons. Like, one, because you're uncomfortable if you have to do those things. You don't want to give, like, painfully. Um, you don't want to be around people who are uncomfortable or who smell bad mm-hmm. or who like, like prostitutes who have sex with strangers for money. It's like the very people that Jesus hung out with. Um, and so, but so like me trying to figure out the mechanics of life after death, I, I'm forcing myself to not worry about it so fearfully um, like, and just kind of trust that God will work everything out the way it's supposed to. And if we were supposed to have a clear understanding of it, then there wouldn't be this much debate about it. You know what I mean? Um, but the things that we don't debate, or I guess there is actually some debate, which is stupid, um, is just like the giving to the poor and like, should pastors be multimillionaires? Like, (laughs) Um, Pastors should definitely be multimillionaires. I mean, come on, we work for God. Hello? Yeah. How else are you? How else are you going to know if you're doing it right? Unless you're exactly. flexing your five thousand dollars shoes, of, like preaching the gospel. They yeah. Yeah. If people uh, aren't more attracted to your outfit than to God, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> she was. For everyone who's listening to this, potentially, we're being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in case you couldn't tell. Um, yeah, because the, fr- the like it just frust- the frustrating thing that I cannot understand is how those pastors neglect the most clear teachings of the Bible and somehow come up with some kind of quasi theological. Um, what's the word? Not ecclesiology, but eschatological, or they come up with some kind of eschatology that kind of suits like. You know, God wants you to live in favor, do whatever you want. And then you kind of relegate all of the um, the blessing to the next life. And when all of your emphasis is on the next life, you're free to kind of ignore this life. And I think that that's the entire point of the Bible is don't ignore this life. Don't let people suffer. If you have a lot, give some to people who need it. Like all of that. Yeah, what you said is something I've been thinking a lot recently, um, especially as it relates to generally white Western evangelicalism, is how because we focus so much on what happens after in the next life that we uh, don't do what you know the scriptures are saying, like you're saying to take care of the widow, the orphan, the poor, you know, the the prisoner. But those are the very things that manifest. Uh, God's rule and reign in the world. People see God reigning and ruling when his people who image him are acting the way that God does. I mean, we are God's 
idols, his images, right. that are supposed to represent him to the world. And when the new community infused by the Holy Spirit is, you know, doing things like being reconciled to one another and caring for one another's monetary needs and inviting people who are outsiders to participate in this community of blessing, mm-hmm. that's when, that's the best apologetic for, um, you know, the, the good news of the gospel that, you know, it's truth, it's veracity. And when we don't do any of that and say, hey, you know, get out of this place, heaven is going to be awesome, give me all your money and I'll tell you how. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just... It's just ridiculous. And it also shows how we are so enslaved to this world, to money, into possessions, when we're willing to give a little bit of money to this guy who's, you know, crowdsourcing his fortune through, you know, bastardizing the gospel message yeah. in order to try to receive some more blessing. You know, yeah. it's like, it's the whole American idea. You need money to make money. And so if I give some money to this guy, his blessing will pour upon me. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's really wild. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading this book right now called American Apocalypse, and it's a history of American evangelicalism. Ooh. And I mean, it, it talks about our, you know, our alma mater, Moody, and how that kind of came to be, and working with railroad tycoons and amassing fortunes, and you know, getting people to speak. And Moody did. What's that? Moody did. Oh yeah, Moody. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Like he got massive railroad tycoons to fund his crusades. I mean, how do you think he paid for all that stuff? Huh. And, you know, and because of the rise of dispensationalism, you know, people like giving mass amounts of money to support the Christian cause and the, you know, uh, re- religionizing of, you know, the unreached or the heathens hmm. in order to save their souls. Yeah. But not really maybe doing as much as they could have done. Um, for their, you know, physical existence. I thought Moody, I remember reading that Moody was actually pretty good about that and like reach, like that's why our school was in the center of Chicago is because they were reaching out to the inner city and like, like giving white and black men alike educations and theological educations. And like they helped invent basketball with the YMCA so that people wouldn't fight or drink, but they would just play basketball instead. Do they talk (laughs) about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I think that's right, especially in like that shorter life of D.L. Moody that we had to read going mm-hmm. in as freshmen, if I remember correctly. But this one's mainly focusing on how like his dream was able to be to reach fruition in in the kind of money and ideology behind that to support that. Um, so, hmm. yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's not all like you know, all glorious and amazing, but there's also like shadier sides too that need to be, you know, unearthed and mm-hmm. be aware of and see how that's affected our understanding of what it means to be, to be a Christian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think you're spot on in that. We spend a lot of time writing books about four views on hell when it's like one view on serving the poor. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah. No one really debates that because it's pretty clear. I mean, there is that book too. I mean, like when helping hurts, like oh, that's a great book. It is an excellent, excellent book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and figuring out the you know the most beneficial ways long term to help people to help themselves. You know, one professor always said, "Give them a hand up rather than a handout." Yeah, I'm like it's a good way to put it. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. I read that book uh, last year. It was super, super good, especially living in Guatemala when I read it. Mm. Um, it was really helpful. Yeah. So, hell, man. Yeah. But anyway, uh, back to universalism. Why don't we talk a little bit more about it? I wanted to read, I mean, when he lists off the, uh, the verses that he compiled that, um, seemed pretty convincing. I was reading those and I was like, man, like, it's really hard. Here's well, going back to my point before, like you read this list of verses, I'll just read them off in a second. And it's really hard to think like, man, how could universalism not be what the Bible is teaching beginning to end? But you could also uh, like compile the same, uh, the same number of verses 
on like eternal conscious torment and also be convinced of the same thing. So that kind of goes back to my original point is of if the Bible wanted to be so clear about it, it would have been. But the fact that it doesn't must mean that this is not the main point. Um, and yet so much of like you, like you kind of touched on so much of American Christianity in the past, like say 200 years has been built on like, get out of hell you're going to hell unless you accept Jesus. And it's like that fear-based, like, hell. And it's like, that's, that like, regardless of what hell ends up actually being, that's not the way that the Bible uses hell, um, I don't think. Like, it doesn't use it. the Bible it. uses hell as a warning against those who are participating in, who are already converted, basically. Hmm. Uh, like, you know, when Jesus is giving his parable of the guy who you know, has a huge debt, it gets forgiven, and the other guy has a little debt to the guy who has a huge right. debt who gets yeah. forgiven. You know, he's using that as a parable against the Pharisees. Yeah. Um, exactly, yeah. Used generally as those who are religious who already seem to have an end with God, and, you know, Jesus is basically saying, check yourselves before you wreck yourselves, <laughs> because this is what's coming for you if you don't actually do what I am asking you to do, which is to, you know, Love justice, love mercy, hmm. and, you know, yeah. walk humbly with God. And you're not doing any of that. Yeah. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it's, uh, man, it's just, it just seems so obvious to me. Um, and yet it doesn't get done. Like, and then we have to ask a question, you know, the question like, well, what is stopping this from getting done? Yeah, why why aren't more Western, generally white evangelicals, you know, why? Okay, so <laughs> I'm a pastor of a congregation of fifty people. I live in the country, live in the parsonage. I make about forty two thousand dollars a year, you know, salary. That's more than I'm me. <laughs> What's that? That's more than me. Yeah, well, I also. I finished my master's and my education according to the American system says I deserve at least this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I did a, a global calculation just to see how much, you know, how wealthy I am with the rest of the world. I'm going to top 1% of the world's population in wealth. Hmm. And I make $42,000 a year. Hmm. This is, I mean, this is, that's just, that's just crazy to me. And, I mean, there are people in my congregation who make more than that. And so it's like, okay, we have this huge wealth, you know, disparity. You know, like, and, and what do I do with it? Yeah, I tithe, you know, to the church, but it's kind of like I'm paying myself. But I also <laughs> see it as an act of worship as well uh, because it's to the greater mission of, you know, the church that I'm a, a part of. Like, I'm the pastor, but I'm also a congregant at the same time. Uh, and okay, I, I support Laura, our you know our compassion child, uh, and you know that's really about it. It's like, man, we mm. can be doing so much more, but then we have to factor in like, well, ethically, how far is you know, okay, I have three, going to be four children soon, outside the womb. Like, what do they need? Yeah, know? and also uh, the cost of living is way higher here than it is in, like, India, say, where you could live on, like, $100 a month. Right. Definitely. You know what's uh, funny, though? My uh, tax return for 2019 was $800. Sorry, not the return. That's how much I made last year. <laughs> I made $800 last year. Just from working or? Um, because I was in Guatemala for six months. <laughs> and then I came back. Um, sorry, I made $800 in the U.S. So I made most of my money in Guatemala, and then that lasted me several months while I found a different job in November as a chaplain at a nursing home. So in the U.S. last year, I made $800. <laughs> yes. Do you want to hear something even crazier? So my tax return, and uh, not not for this year, but for last year, for 2019, I was able to get a tax return of $10,000. What? Because I had three children outside the womb. I was in school full time. And between working, 
between Andrew working a part-time job and me working a, a part-time job, between the two of us, we made $19,000. And so we were way below the tax line, but because we had affordable housing, had a scholarship, uh, we were able to get like food assistance, so we hardly had to buy groceries. Uh, we were able, we were on WIC because we had children, so we had between food assistance, oh, and a food pantry that the seminary had, uh, and WIC, we didn't have to buy any groceries. And so we were living like kings at $19,000, and the government gives us ten grand back because we're poor. And this year, okay, you know, finally, you know, full-time job, you know, parsonage, whatever, still the same amount of kids. I had to pay $800 into the, <laughs> into the system. It's like, Dang. who comes up with this stuff? <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I don't understand how it works, but I do know that, you know, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just the disparity in, like, the millionaires and billionaires is just insane to me. Like, I saw a tweet the other day, and it said something like, um, I said, how about this for an idea? It said, no more billionaires. You reach $999 million, and you get a trophy that says, I won capitalism, and then you give the rest away. (laughs) (laughs) But... And bringing that back to universalism, it just makes me, you know, like, because specifically it's talking about hell, but I'm, I'm wondering what the universalist might say to our, you know, conversation right now about, you know, like wealth disparity. It's like, you know, hey, you want things to be really good and everything's going to be really good, you know, so do you, like, does the universalist continue to, like, help i mean maybe they would have more impetus to help people because i think there's like an evangelical anxiety of like i want to help you but i want to make sure the gospel's attached yeah maybe the universalists wouldn't have that well going back to what we said i think in the last last conversation um i thought more about it and i still i stand by what i said before um because i think your biggest argument against universalism was it kind of defeats the way Sorry, it kind of defeats the purpose of evangelism. Like, why am I going to evangelize somebody if they're ultimately going to get saved anyway? And my thought process was, well, like, well, why would Jesus put such an emphasis on helping people and making them feel welcome and accepted and fed for 80 years? You know, Um, like, why would he care that much about that when... Um, and again, this is just like made up mechanics of universalism, but it's like, if they're going to be punished and then saved anyway, um, I lost my, I lost my argument. Hang on. But like, what would be the point of helping an orphan in this life? Say, if they're just going to be alone and hungry for 80 years, if they're ultimately going to be like saved anyway, like thousands of years from now, does that make sense? I'm not communicating that as well as I can. My brain just got really foggy. But like, like logically, you shouldn't care about either if you're going to get saved in the end. But Jesus makes it very clear that we do need to care about the orphans and the widows and the hungry and the poor, even though their distress is temporary. And I think for me, this is just following kind of like the inner logic of the scriptures and that you know, faith comes through hearing and hearing the, you know, word of, of, of God. And so it's like, I think in Mark's gospel, it opens up with like Jesus coming, you know, repent for the kingdom of God's hand. And he says several times, like I have come to preach the gospel, let us go to another town. And so the proclamation of, you know, God's arriving kingdom is, you know, through word, but I think it's also through deed. And so, you know, the, like you want to, you know, St. Francis of Assisi always, has always been quoted saying like, hey, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And I think yeah. that's bogus because I don't think he really said that. And I think that the whole kind of thrust is just misguided. But there is something to it and that our, our actions, you know, testify to the reality that we're participating in. And if God is calling us to, you know, proclaim his word and set up outposts of God's coming kingdom that say, this is what it's going to be like everywhere. Yeah. Uh, then that is, you know, the, you know, impetus for doing such a thing. Um, even if, 
you know, people aren't all going to be, you know, saved in the end. It's like, like you, you like, you can still participate in this new creation blessing mm-hmm. uh, right now. And you can, you know, participate in this new creation blessing forever by, you know, participating in Christ by pledging your allegiance to him through faith. Yeah. Um, so in a way, the universalist impetus for universalism, sorry, the universalist impetus for evangelism would be to get people into the kingdom life as soon as possible. I think so. You could sum it up that way. Yeah. Get them the ice cream as soon as possible. Don't make them wait a thousand years for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but the way <laughs> the thing too about the universalist position is that I kind of agree with, you know, the guy who responds for the pur- for the purgatory position and the annihilationist position is that there are passages that seem like, I mean, he, he does say in his chapter, where, where is it? Uh, he says, I'm trying to find the one where, where he talks about that Hebrews passage where it says it was appointed for man to die once and then judgment. I remember that. Oh, yeah. There are no biblical texts that say death is a point of no return, but neither are there texts that unambiguously say that one can repent after death. Of course, some appeal to passages like Hebrews 9.27, but all that text claims is that all humans die once and then face judgment, and all sides of this debate agree with that claim. And so I'm just kind of thinking about Oh, then he goes, yeah, to further and insist that this judgment leads to irreversible punishment is to go beyond anything said in the text. And so it just makes me think, like, what does he think that judgment is then? I mean, like, do you just get more or less, like, rewards? Kind of like, you know, the parable of, you know, the talents, but that kind of doesn't hold up because the guy who only had one talent still gets kicked out in the end. Yeah. Well, that's why... That's what I was talking about when I said I wish he had gone more into the mechanics of it. Because, like, if I were writing this chapter, um, or I should say the way I understand it, is Adolf Hitler gets punished for one million years, and then he gets saved. Whereas that kid on my street who just got shot, or sorry, who just, like, shot another kid... He might get punished for a couple years because, like, no one ever loved him. He didn't know better. He was uneducated. Mm-hmm. You know, his dad probably either beat him or abandoned him. And so it makes sense that he's going to join a gang and then shoot up some neighbors, you know? Like, um, he's going to get punished for, say, a thousand years rather than a million. But both in both cases, they end up together, but the, just, but the punishment did fit the crimes that they did. Does that make sense? So that's, that's my understanding of it. Um, I am tempted to read the Evangelical Universalist where he fleshes it out a lot more um, than a couple pages. Because I, I have a friend who read this book and they read the Evangelical Universalist, which is by the same guy. And they said that he really wasn't done justice in this short passage. Like, you really need to read the Evangelical Universalist to get his full message, to get his full argument. And... Um, but yeah, I think so. I think to kind of sum up where I'm at, I think how this has affected me orthopractically, like how I act versus just how I believe, is that like it makes me want to be like, like if I'm on God's side, like if I'm choosing the right side to be on in this debate, the right side is somebody who gives to his neighbors and goes and knocks on their door and gives them food or like seeks out the inner city kids who don't have dads, you know? And like, if you want, if you want the safe side to be on where Jesus is concerned, this isn't really what matters. What matters is like, are you hanging out with the abandoned people? Are you reaching out to the widows and the orphans? And like, um, I feel like rather than worrying about which is the right thing to believe, I should be more worried about, am I acting the right way Um, regardless of how it'll all work out? Because then I'm not worrying about my own eternal destiny or those of the people I'm interacting with. As long as I'm showing them Jesus being Jesus with skin on to them, like you said, an icon toward these people, icon of God or an idol of God himself um, to them. 
and then everything else I think will work itself out, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, you know, pastorally, how this has affected me, you know, I, I don't think I've, like, ever preached on hell or mentioned hell in a sermon ever, and I've almost been here for a year now, uh, just because, like, like we, we've said, it's, it doesn't seem really like a main thrust of, the, you know, the scriptures, like judgment, you know, for sure, you know, and have I warned people of what might happen if we are, you know, slow of hearing and slothful in our obedience to the Lord? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have maybe been like, sorry, I haven't been like, yeah, you're going to go to hell for this. It's like, yeah. here are the consequences that you're going to experience for, for your actions. And, uh, you know, reading this too has helped me to imagine like ways as a pastor that I can, um, help manifest God's coming kingdom in my own actions. And, you know, we have two services. I preach in the Sunday morning and Sunday evening because of COVID. It's only been, you know, digitally Sunday mornings, which has been great. But mm-hmm. I'm going to see if I'm going to uh, ask if we can just get rid of the evening service. So instead of writing two sermons a week, fresh new sermons, not the same sermon Sunday morning and evening, uh, that I can spend like, a majority of my Thursday evening volunteering at our pregnancy center hmm. in town. Uh, I mean, not our, like the churches, but a pregnancy center that's in town uh, and be a client advocate for, you know, couples hmm. counseling and, you know, teaching about healthy relationships because basically, you know, it's run by, you know, women, which, you know, makes sense if men are out working, you know, jobs generally and, it's, you know, women who, you know, have time to volunteer just kind of in the system of American culture that we currently have. Uh, but like, Hey, I can be a strong male presence and get to know like black people, Hispanic people, who's their general clientele. Um, and like, just listen to them mm-hmm. and see if I can give them a hand up yeah. and a hand out and yeah. tell them about Jesus in my work. And that, like, hey, like, there be like your marriage or your partnership, which hopefully can lead to marriage, can be godly. And, yeah, um, you know, and Give I think that hope. would be, this is weird, you know, saying, you know, as a pastor, but I think that would be a better use of my time to preach one sermon than two sermons. Yeah. Uh, for what God is calling, you know, me to do. No, I totally agree. That's legit. Um, yeah, because two things. Um, on so that the shooting on my street happened on Saturday, like the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. So right after it happened, um, I went to Walmart and I bought a bunch of greeting cards and I bought a bunch of candy. And I was like, you know, the best, like literally the most effective thing I think I could do to my neighbors right now. Because um, I think everybody heard about the shooting. Many of them knew the people in the house. Um but we we just spent all Saturday night writing, like, you know, in gr- uh, the greeting cards fold in half. So on on one side, we were all in English, and the other side, we were all in Spanish, because we have a very Hispanic neighborhood. And, um, and I tried to speak to my neighbors in Spanish as much as possible. And we just said, like, Happy Easter. He's risen. Let us know if there's any way we can ever serve you, the boys in 1830. And... Um, and then we just gave that out with candy and like we knocked on people's doors and half of them, we just had to leave it in their mailbox or something. But like, I, like I was thinking about it and it was like, what's the best response? And it's like, you know, like there's this terrible, terrible tragedy that just happened. And how do Christians respond to that? And it's like, we, we plant little seeds of life wherever we can. And it's like, if we're offering to like just mow our neighbor's lawn and show them like, Hey, we are going to try to, as best as we can, we're not perfect, but we're going to try to replace the pain that was just introduced into this neighborhood um, with something that's life-giving and just like serving some elderly neighbor or just giving them candy or hanging out with their kids or, you know, whatever it is, just building bridges between a white house and a Hispanic house, whatever, it, you know, um, we would just want to try to do that as much as possible. Um and so I, th- I think that that, like I was doing that, and as I was just leaving those candies and cards on the doors of my neighbors, it was like, um, I just had this feeling of like, this is just a very, very, very small thing 
that's like kingdom motivated. Like it's like this is kind of what the kingdom look like, looks like. It's just like getting to know your neighbors, reaching out to them, um, hopefully over a long period of time, and then building those bridges rather than building walls. And um, so, yeah, I, like I don't know, I don't know what heaven and hell look like or are like. But I know that if I'm leaving cards and candies on my neighbor's doorstep, I'm not doing everything entirely wrong. <laughs> um, so I guess that's where I'm at. Um, and then Rob Bell says, uh, in Love Wins, because he would probably fall under the universalist category in this book. Um, uh, what was the... Which part did I want to pull out? Ah, shoot. Oh, he said, like... Um, Hell is very much a place on earth in this life, just as much as it could be a place in the afterlife. He says, like, talk to a child who grew up in the Rwandan genocide and tell, and tell them that they didn't grow up in hell. Or um, maybe even the mothers that you are ministering to, like, they probably have gone through seasons of hell in their own lives. Or, um, you know, more common things like cancer and having a family member who just has this unexplainable cancer um, there's no reason for it. There's no logic to cancer. It just happens and it kills people. Um, and you want to say that that's not hellish, like that's not Gehenna um, in this life. And therefore, what does the Christian do to combat hell? We like replace replace that with life. Um, yeah. like, and we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We bear witness <clears throat> to pain, mm-hmm. the one who's taken it all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even, like even more simple things like widows, um, visiting them, spending time with them because um, loneliness itself can be a very sort of hell. And how do you undo that loneliness? That hell of that loneliness? You could just like hang out with a with a widow for a lunch or something like that. You know, it's like I don't think that it's quite as um, magisterial and ethereal as we often imagine them to be. Um, I think that you kind of undo hell every time that you reach out to a lonely person or feed someone who's hungry or, you know, and, um, and obviously you could go down the whole rabbit trail of, um, when helping hurts and all that stuff. But I just think generally speaking, the kingdom happens now. And that also necessarily means that hell happens now too. Um, and I'm trying to become less worried or fearful about what the afterlife is like. And, because I can't really affect that, but I can affect people who are in hell today, you know? Right. And I read an article back when I was at Moody called The Anxious Bench, and um, it was um, John Williamson Nevin. He was critiquing Charles Finney's revivalist methods because he used this thing called The Anxious Bench, and he would sit people right up front and play, you know, soaring music and get people to have you know, these emotional experiences and he would, you know, get conversions by people being overcome with everything that was going on and confessing that they encountered Jesus. And he was critiquing that. Uh, but I think that Charles Finney's methods have kind of seeped into our own understanding and that we have an evangelical anxiousness about what happens after we die, which I think is why we're so concerned about what happens to our souls. And it's something we've kind of inherited from the Puritans too, of like the kind of self-piestic, you know, me and Jesus and, you know, I'd be nice to other people. But it's, we haven't reached the point where we completely, uh, you know, orient ourselves towards, you know, spending ourselves and being spent um, Hmm. in service of of, of other people. You know, we haven't embodied the Philippians 2 narrative, you know, although having this privilege was not used to our own advantage, but we humble ourselves Hmm. to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, God at the right time exalts us. It's not, yeah. let's maintain our comfort yeah. and everything that we have right now. And then, you know, try to get through this life as pain-free as possible so we can continue in a state of bliss that we've already cultivated for ourselves. Yeah. It's kind of like the like a question which may seem, some people might accuse this question of being like misleading or overly simplistic is like, um, or you tell me what you think. Like, would you rather, would Jesus rather hang out with somebody who had a universalist view of hell 
but really loved all of his neighbors really well, gave to the poor, etc., hung out with homeless people. Or some of those like jerks who were at Moody who had like the, the very strict biblical reformed like the orthodoxy, the correct like, belief. Like me in my freshman and sophomore year. <laughs> yeah, like me for most of my life. Um, <laughs> or like well, you, you know, I'm picturing a million of those Moody students who are, who are like that and might still be like that. But um but like you wouldn't you don't want to hang out with those guys. <laughs> but like who's who's doing it more biblically? Like, who did Jesus hang out with? The Pharisees or the prostitutes? Well, he rebuked the Pharisees and he ate dinner with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Although, he did have an evening session with Nicodemus. Yeah, he spent a lot of time with the Pharisees, but a lot of it was spent rebuking them. (laughs) So. Not the most fun conversations to have. Yeah, and, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, like, who started those religious orthodoxy conversations, Jesus or the Pharisees? It's always the Pharisees. I think that's fine. I mean, not always, but generally. Yeah, Jesus doesn't go up to them and say, hey, do you have a proper, like, um, yeah, super Saiyan view of the whatever? You know, it's like, no, it's the Pharisees who are always like, oh, teacher, uh, excuse me, uh, blah, 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 blah. You yeah. know? So, like, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm at a point in my faith where maybe my orthopraxy is... I'm realizing it's more important and more valuable than my orthodoxy because you can argue about orthodoxy for years and still not be a hundred percent certain on a lot of things. Yeah. And so I used to be super into systematic theology and to a point I am, um, since I have a bunch of books sitting on my shelf that I've read most of them, but (laughs) I'm, I'm finding myself like that, that same way, like as a pastor now, like, my congregation knows everything that they need to do. They just don't do it. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, not, not all of them, but it's because, you know, reflecting on my own life, it's like, it's because I don't do it either. And I'm, I'm constantly asking myself, why, why don't I do this? Is this like my inherited, you know, upbringing as, you know, a, white western evangelical like what has made me be theologically the person i am i am today what what am i willing to hold on to where am i failing you know have i interpreted the bible wrong am i missing things and Hmm. that's why like just kind of getting into the scriptures and listening a lot to nt Wright and some various other new testament and old testament scholars has opened my eyes up a little bit because it's moved me away from just like, let me just proof text the crap out of stuff to show you that I'm right. <laughs> Instead, it's about embodying the story hmm. and stories aren't like proposition statements, you know, hmm. they're more complex and nuanced and realizing that my life is a story and how I can be a character in that, you know, I'm the character of Garrett Saul, you know, husband of Andrea, father of my children and mm-hmm. like, what character traits should I have in God's story? Well, Galatians 5 gives me a great list. I need to be loving, kind, patient, you know, like, mm-hmm. and if I'm not following these characteristics, then I'm not following God's script. Yeah. And that that's a bigger deal to me hmm. than, you know, whether or not I agree if you're in for lapse area or super lapse area, <laughs> was God's decree before the fall or after the fall, like, you know. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I like that. Um, and then exposing to the stories that people are either, you know, intentionally or unintentionally finding themselves in, like the story of the American dream hmm. and how, you know, nationalism yeah. and capitalism has, you know, led generally to, you know, uh, hoarding of wealth in order to just keep getting more and pushing people aside, or the narrative of racism, systemic racism in America, um, just to name a few things that have been on my mind lately. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really big things. And I think that, yeah, those are like definitely anti kingdom things. And so it makes sense that Christians, in my opinion, um, Christians should be more upset about those things than we are. So, I mean, we, we have no reason to be upset about them because our souls are secure. So booyah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you just kind of re- like, that's, that's what I said. If you, if you're relegating your, your faith and your effort, um, or 
if your Christianity exists post-mortem, then you can do whatever you want in this life. And then you completely miss the entire Bible. So it's uh, really messed up. Which I fear is what's happening with a lot of the, you know, religious right, you know, hey, let's ignore everything that Trump is doing and saying and how he conducts himself because he's our man and he'll continue to stand for the Christian party, which is the Republican party, of course. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give him our vote because yeah. we want to stay in power. And, you know, who cares of what we do in this life and our decisions because our souls are secure. Yeah, don't but even get me started. Don't to touch our corporations and money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why... I don't want to go down this rabbit trail at all, but that's why I was so upset. A couple months ago, I don't know if you saw when all the big famous worship leaders went to the White House and they were all like, they did like a little concert for Donald Trump and then they all laid hands on him and then they all posted on their social media like, the Lord's anointed is in the White House. Praise God. We got to worship with him. And I was like, like, I'm all for like Christians praying for their leaders you, like, if I got invited to the White House for some Christian thing, I would do it. I would go. I'd be like, yeah, this house needs as much prayer as it can get. I would not pray. I would not post, like, butt-kissing posts all over my social media saying, Donald Trump is the Lord's anointed. What a godly man. I'm glad we got to pray with this brother. Like, s- screw that, honestly. <laughs> there, like, there's no way. There's no yeah. way. As John says in Revelation 19, come out of her. Come out of battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's yeah. – this conversation with you just now has kind of made me think that maybe the universalist ethic might be the most coherent. Just – I guess to sum it up simply, it's just like get people into the kingdom as soon as possible. Don't make them wait longer than they have to. I think that's a good, trite way of putting it. Um, and it seems like what he would, you know, say for his, you know, well, then why evangelize? Well, you know, wouldn't it be better to participate in God's blessings now rather than later? Like, yeah. better for me to be eating ice cream now rather than tomorrow? Of course it is. No. <laughs> yeah, except times a million, just like knowing Jesus. Like, here's Jesus. Know him now. He cares about you now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just think of you know people's lives who have been, you know, completely transformed but later in life, like maybe 50, and I say I and for the handful that I've known, they've always said to me, I wish I would have known about Jesus in my 20s. Yeah. Absolutely. Um Okay, so but right before we wrap it up, um what, are you excuse me? Would you still say that you lean the most toward annihilationism at this point? I think I lean most towards not caring so much. I think I would lean towards that um, just because of, I mean, I think eternal conscious torment doesn't, I just think it doesn't do justice no pun intended to <laughs> like how god presents himself and the redemption that's found right in this but i do think that the mystery of sin is a big deal that isn't often talked about in the end of view of hell and how our rejection of jesus leads to the wrath of god remaining upon us hmm. um and even uh, the purgatory response to the universalist guy said like you know hell is a door that is you know, locked from the inside, like people lock themselves, you know, into it. And, you know, Hmm. as sin has a power over people who haven't been liberated by the gospel message of Jesus, uh, they find themselves, you know, trapped there. Uh, So, yeah. And eventually, you know, sin is, you know, nothingness. It's non-existence. And to participate in, you know, your judgment for, what you've done in this, you know, life, whatever that may look like, seems like God's justice, you know, being being done, hmm. um, and it answers, you know, Job's questions, you know, uh, Solomon's questions in Proverbs, you know. I notice a weird thing that you know the wicked man has a lot of food and the righteous man goes hungry. <laughs> like, yeah. 
So I, I think annihilationism does a good job of uh, being, you know, exegetically defensible, uh, foot both in kind of the universalist, you know, camp and how are the uh, universalist? What's that? Preston Sprinkle, um, when I heard his podcast on annihilationism, he said annihilationism is less universalist than ECT because ECT keeps them alive forever. <laughs> you know, if they're if they're annihilated, there's no chance for them to eventually be saved. What I mean by one foot in the universalist camp and one foot in the ECT camp is that uh, annihilationism is a view that if someone holds ECT and generally, you know, we kind of know how, you know, who those people would, would be within evangelical <laughs> Christianity. Annihilationism would be a view that would be able to help maybe open up understanding. Whereas if you're just coming in saying, I'm a universalist, it can shut off all conversation because you're already a heretic. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just to say it again, that's why I really wish that that wasn't such a buzzword and I could kind of have like a, like a, first-time introduction to the idea without it being tainted by, like, the heretic label. It, just name it Ultimate Reconciliation. And then people will be like, oh, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Just, or Christus Victor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if I learned anything about raising kids so far, it's just change the name of something that you want to do, and then if it's new and novel, they're all in. <laughs> Chores? No, it's Trash Game. <laughs> Dude, I've used that so many times, you have no idea. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, can you pick up your coat? Uh, no, I don't want to pick up my coat. Hey, can you play the game? Throw your coat on the hook? Okay. <laughs> like, that's amazing, seriously. Yeah, yep. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Well, I'm I'm good on universalism. I'll be thinking about this conversation for a while, I think. But um, yeah, do you have anything else you want to add? What's that? Do you have anything else you want to add? No, that's it. Uh, so far, I'm interested to read uh, the purgatory response, um, mm-hmm. the purgatory chapter. Yeah, so we got to get that done. That's not something I buy, but I want to see how it's like delivered. I'm I'm really curious about the opportunity for salvation after death. Like, yeah, so I'm interested to see what he says about it, but we'll see. Sweet. Well, thanks for chatting with me, and uh, maybe uh, next week or you know two weeks from now. Just uh, depends. I'm doing a lot of reading projects, and I'm saying, all right, Garrett, hunker down and finish a book or two. Yeah, we got to finish this one for sure. That's right. That's yeah, right. but uh, a book that I recommend that I'm reading right now is called Scandalous Witness. Uh, it's uh, a short political manifesto for Christians. Hmm. Uh, it's the subtitle, and it has just 15 principles about like. Christian's relationship with, you know, politics with a short exposition on each. Maybe it's like 120 pages. And Hmm. uh, so far it's just very, very good. Very intense, provocative, but really good. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Well, I'm going to get some ice cream for me and my wife. (laughs) Not later. Now. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, man. All right. Well, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Peace.